My least favorite part of writing a book and having a book published and having another book published and all the excitement that went with it was the moment when I got an email that had my book manuscript and then all sorts of comments and corrections and suggestions very helpfully tell me what I meant to say. I, I admit that maybe half the time I would look at it and say, yeah, okay, I could have said that better. Oh, yeah, good idea here. Okay. But the other half, oh, no, 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 no. I wrote it this way because that's the way it's supposed to be. Who are you to tell me what it's supposed to be? The editor? Okay, I guess that makes some sense. But I remember being told, that's not a word. And writing back in the Microsoft comments, it is now. Uh, and for me, having no longer got this in my life, it's interesting to watch my wife as she gets back these comments from editors and watch her face. She doesn't have a very good poker face when she's reading through these things. And she'll, she'll gesticulate wildly and she'll, she'll exclaim things to the heavens. And, and you know, it, it's an interesting idea that you can write something and someone else can tell you how you should have said it better. And yet, there was this one beautiful little moment. The, the second book that I wrote, uh, I had put in a, a conversation. It was between a, a pastor and a, a kind of wayward young guy. And the pastor quotes scripture for two or three sentences. And in the middle of all the comments from the editor, uh, it was a line editor, it was someone who was freelanced out, they had corrected the scriptures. They didn't realize what they were doing. They said, well, this is a little bit awkward right here in the middle. And wouldn't it be better if you said this? <laughs> As a big publisher, they actually owned the rights to the Bible, the NIV that I was quoting. Uh, but I wrote back, well, your point is taken, but do you really want to change the Bible? Now, what they were suggesting was not changing the spirit of it or even what was written in the original Greek, but they wanted to change what some style editor had decided would be the best way to say what the Bible tells us. But all the same, it was very funny. But I'll tell you what, when I read this passage, I feel like a temptation to pull out a red pen and say, hold on a minute, we've got a couple mistakes. First and foremost, and maybe that'll get your attention, right? The preacher just said this. No, there's not mistakes in the Bible. But when you read it, it catches you off guard. It's jarring here. You read in verse 1, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. And then there's one of those long dashes. And then he starts a completely different thought. And it looks like a sentence fragment. If you turned that into a teacher in high school English, they would mark that and say, you've got a subject, you got no verb. You go from that to talking about other stuff, assuming that you've heard of this, blah, 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 blah. And then you get a period, and then you get more sentences, and you never finish that thought. Well, he does finish the thought, but he actually interrupts himself here. This is not a copyist's error, as some might have suggested. This is not a mistake that was made at the printing press when they printed your Bible. This is Paul interrupting himself, not for the first time, by the way, in the book of Ephesians. And I love when this happens because it reminds me that these letters were almost certainly dictated. Paul, I can see him pacing back and forth in his prison cell. Well, young Timothy or Titus or somebody is taking down every word that he says. And he starts to say, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, and suddenly a thought hits him. And he interrupts himself and he goes on for quite some time, 12 and a half verses before he finishes that thought. 
Now, even without the interruption, I think this section would be a little bit jarring for us. Because this letter so far has been all about what God is doing. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been the main character of this letter to the Ephesians. And when we humans briefly took center stage, it was only so that Paul could show us just how horribly off we were before Christ came and saved us from our sins. That we were dead in our trespasses, that we were far off, that we were aliens from God, etc., etc. We are not the stars of this story of heroism. We are the damsel in distress. This is not a human-centric story, the gospel. We are merely the recipients of undeserved love, also called grace. Which is why it takes us by surprise when Paul begins this whole section, for this reason, I, Paul, and then he goes on to talk at length about how he had received this mystery he is now passing on to us. Perhaps he is doing this because what he has told them in the last passage, when he told them that, that the wall between Jew and Gentile had been knocked down so that now all have equal access to God, maybe he sees that that's such a, a crazy out of left field idea that he wants to just kind of reassure them, I have the authority to tell you this. I am indeed an apostle and I did receive this by revelation from God. But more than anything, this is all about the mystery. This is a word that comes up again and again in the book of Ephesians. And as we've said before, it doesn't have the same meaning in the Bible that it has in the rest of life, right? If you, if you read a mystery, you're, you're reading a whodunit. And it only works if you don't know who done it. As soon as somebody sees that you're reading and goes, oh, hey, yeah, the butler did it. They've ruined it. They've killed the mystery. You may as well just put it down. Or if you say to someone, you know, it's a mystery to me because you don't know the answer. You don't have the knowledge. It stops being a mystery to you the moment you get the answer or you gain the knowledge. But even though our word mystery comes from this Greek word mysterion, it doesn't have the same meaning. And it's important that we remember that. In fact, if you haven't already written a little note in the margin of your Bible, now would be a great time to do it. Mysterion, in most of the first century, in general, when the Greeks would use this Greek word, it meant something known only to the initiated. And most of the religions amongst the Gentiles that were popular, at least, when Paul was preaching the gospel to them, were called mystery cults. And they were uh, knowledge-based religions where you ascended higher and higher and you got more and more secrets known only to those in this inner, inner circle. In the New Testament, on the other hand, there's a different spin on things. In the New Testament, a mystery means something that was unknown before Christ, but is now revealed in Christ. It is revealed. There's been revelation. Revelation is a major theme in the Bible, if you haven't noticed. In fact, the whole thing ends with a book called Revelation. Singular. Don't call it Revelations. That makes smoke come out of my ears. But, you know, there are people who will even read a book called Revelation as if it were a mystery novel. A whodunit, or who does it, who will do it. And, and, and the fact that we are willing to treat something called revelation as if it's about the unknown that we can't barely understand and that we have to work to even grasp what it's about at all. In a book that's all about mysteries, which are things revealed in Christ, formerly unknown, but now 
illuminated by the Spirit and by Christ in His work. It, it blows my mind that, that, that you see, you know, you turn on the big hair religious channel and there's someone out there talking about end time stuff, book of Revelation, and they're always giving you some other story. Well, who does it? Well, it's going to be uh, Gorbachev? No, probably not him. Saddam Hussein? No, not him. Oh, okay, it's uh, the European Union has 12, and, and you go, oh my goodness, how does this feed me spiritually? How, how is this glorifying God or revealing anything? Or the guy on YouTube with the whiteboard with all the crazy charts, I admit I watch it, but not for the right reason. These are things that were hidden before Christ came and now are revealed. When you read a history book, do you read it with this sense of, ooh, I wonder who done it? Right? You're reading a history of World War II, and you're like, I can't turn the pages fast enough. I got a good feeling about this Mussolini guy. I think he's going to play a really big part for good. No! In fact, you'd be wasting your time. You're wasting your time if you listen to these things. And, I, and people have wasted their lives trying to crack some code that isn't there. And I understand how that's exciting, but it must get frustrating. Like, you remember the old show, The Fugitive? Not the great movie with Harrison Ford, but the show it was based on. His wife is murdered. He spends every episode trying to find the guy who did it, and he never does. He's looking for the one-armed man, but he finds the one-armed man in the last episode, and it's not the guy. And you're like, what on earth? Or you watch Lost, and they just give up. They're like, we don't know what happens. We were just trying to sell you Tide detergent. We don't know. It's frustrating. You're seeking and seeking and trying to put it together, destined never to find the answer. Well, Jesus said, seek and you will find. Look to Jesus. He's who done it. He's who is revealed in the book of Revelation, and he's the one to whom these things point. In fact, there are an awful lot of texts in which people are even like, well, this is about the Antichrist, and I think I know who it is. And you read it through a more Christocentric lens and let Scripture interpret Scripture, and you find out this isn't about the Antichrist. It's about Jesus himself. We can get off track with this stuff very quickly. A mystery is revealed in Christ. And, and Paul uses this word mystery in Ephesians seven times. That seems significant. And four of those times are here in this chapter. And we saw it already once in chapter 1, where we read that the mystery of God's will was to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. The mystery that Paul wants to reveal to the Ephesians and to whoever else was going to get this letter as it went around in circulation is this. We saw this last time. I'm going to repeat it. Christ's first coming has an awful lot to do with unity. And we're not talking about some generic sense of hold hands and sing kumbaya and buy the world a Coke and all this kind of stuff. No, this is a very particular kind of unity. It is unity under the head, which is Christ. And it is unity through the gospel, which we see that in verse 6. Through the gospel. There can only be true unity in Christ. But where we are in Christ, there must be true unity. And the mystery in view then is that through Christ, Gentiles are made partakers along with Jews of God's great blessing and not in the old way, like in the old covenant, where they had to kind of scale the wall between the two by proselytizing, where someone could be circumcised and go through this whole process of putting himself under the law and finally, after much work, become part of the in group. Rather, Christ has crushed the wall entirely. 
which was the Old Testament ceremonial law. And now there is equal access. Now we read this and we think, yeah, of course. Of course Jesus came to die for all people so that all people could follow him. That's old hat. That's obvious. Well, it wasn't obvious to those getting this letter because there was still quite a rift. This rift was huge. It went back a very long ways. Remember as we were studying the book of Acts, when uh, Paul was in the, the temple and, and he was supposedly had brought a Gentile in, he hadn't, but there were all these lies flying around about him, and there was a conspiracy to get him arrested because he was including Gentiles in the kingdom of God, because he had kind of sold out his people and the view of the higher-ups. And there was this man, Claudius Lysias, he was a Roman tribune, he was, he was an honorable man, and when Paul said, can I address the crowd? He said, yeah, go ahead, maybe you can bring peace, and we can forget this whole thing. Paul stood up, he told them his testimony, how he'd been converted, he'd seen Christ and been knocked down and struck blind, told them all that, told them about his early ministry to the Jews, coming back to Jerusalem, how he was accepted eventually. He, he tells them all sorts of things about his life, about his beliefs, about his mission. But it's only at the point where God tells him, I will send you far off to minister to the Gentiles, that the crowd freaks out and starts shouting, rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. That's quite a rift. And it went both ways too, by the way. This is what he means by I'm a prisoner for the sake of you Gentiles. It was not until Gentiles entered into it that Paul found himself a kind of professional prisoner. But we look at, at the other direction. The Greeks thought of everyone besides them as kind of garbage people. They would use the word barbaroi, meaning barbarian, uh, to describe everyone. They were very, very elitist, and they especially looked down on the Jews, whom they thought of as very foolish. The Romans hated the Jews and their stubborn refusal to just fall in line like everyone else and and to give in to lives of idolatry and debauchery and murder and orgies and, and acknowledge the, the emperor as a god to the point where they banished all Jews at one point from the city of Rome and eventually completely leveled the Jews' holy city of Jerusalem. So there's bad, bad blood here. And before Christ came, no one would have predicted how Jew and Gentile could become one in such a way that it creates a movement that essentially spreads all over the entire world and totally changes not only what year it is by splitting time, but also changes the, the direction that the human race takes for the next two millennia. They would never have guessed that it would be through the coming of this long-awaited Jewish Messiah. The Messiah that most Jews assumed was going to come and just destroy those Gentiles and put us back on top. This Messiah who Greeks and Romans thought of as just a fairy tale, a thorn in their side, an excuse for their underlings to get uppity and try to rebel every once in a while. It's hard to overstate how big a claim this is that Gentiles are now together partakers with the Jews of the promises and blessings of God. So this is the mystery, and here we get a more in-depth look with a particular insight that God has given Paul to share with the church. He says in verse 5 that this mystery was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And you read that and you say, hold on, last time we looked through the Old Testament and found a whole bunch of situations where it was clear that eventually these promises 
would envelop the whole world, would include Gentiles. And it's a situation where what we have is the New Testament in the Old Testament concealed and the Old Testament in the New Testament revealed. So hindsight's 2020. We read the Old Testament now in light of what we know, and we say, oh yeah, I see again and again and again these promises to the Gentiles, but until the Holy Spirit came, it couldn't be completely clear to someone, even someone devout reading the Word of God. In verse 3, Paul says, I assume that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. God's grace that was given to me and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. So he's been given revelation directly from God. In fact, he says, I got my gospel from God, not from men, but it's the same gospel that the other apostles have been given. That's why they accepted me. He says he's been given revelations for you. And I think this is very important because there are people today who will tell me that they have received revelations from God. You know, he, he's telling me things and, and I have a great understanding of spiritual things, but I, I just keep it for myself. This isn't something that I'm sharing with other people. It's not something that, that I'm called to, to help people understand their Bibles better. This is something kind of between me and God. John Owen said, if private revelations agree with Scripture, they are unnecessary, and if they disagree, they are false. I wouldn't go that far, I don't think. It is possible that God has revealed some insight into his truth to you. But when God makes his mysteries known to people in the scriptures, it's never just for them. Look here, he says, this was revealed to me for you. In fact, I went to prison because I was so determined to bring it to you. If you think of God as constantly establishing little in references with you and telling you things that no one else knows, you probably imagining such things. Paul has received this gospel and had mysteries revealed to him by revelation so that he could bring it to the other, uh, to the Gentiles, to the other nations, and he's not alone. He's not the only one. This isn't unique to him. That's the cult leader type stuff. Oh, I've got revelation that no one else has, and it, it goes way beyond what the Bible says. No, no, he says this was also revealed to the apostles and prophets. This is part of what Jude calls the faith once for all handed down to the saints. This is what he's talking about. And this is for you, so that you can know it. In fact, he's so dedicated to bringing the mystery of the gospel to the Gentiles that he somehow makes a positive of describing himself as a prisoner for Christ or a prisoner of Christ. I mean, in this passage, Paul's describing a privilege beyond anything any living person has received and instead of granting him wealth and influence, it landed him in prison. This is the exact same phrase that's used in Philemon, verse 9, where Paul calls himself an old man and now a prisoner also of Jesus Christ. Some Bibles translate uh, prisoner for Jesus Christ, but the more obvious, the clearest reading of the text is simply a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And I think that Paul's viewing himself in those terms, explains how he can be content. He can't leave the building, and yet in Romans 15, he says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. He wants to go out where they haven't heard the gospel, and yet he is stuck. And you could see someone like that with that wandering bug that God put in them to go out and bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, going just absolutely bonkers in his cell. 
and yet he is clearly content because he recognizes himself as a prisoner of Christ. He could have identified himself as I, Paul, the prisoner of Nero, tyrant of Rome, an enemy of the church. Instead, he chooses to see himself as being a prisoner for the glory of Jesus Christ and for the sake of those Gentiles he wishes to reach with the gospel. And just as he makes it clear that we're all slaves to sin and hell until we're freed to be bondservants to Christ, so we are all in a prison cell of lust and self and greed and idolatry until we give ourselves over to Christ, after which even we are now slaves and prisoners of Christ. But paradoxically, even if we're locked in a dungeon, we are still free. This is a mystery indeed. How can that be true? Well, Luther wrote, my conscience is captive to the word of God. And we too are captive to Jesus himself, bound to him the way two men on a chain gang might be shackled to one another. And we would have it no other way. We stay close. And part of the mystery is that this is the only true freedom that is attainable by people who were created to have fellowship with him and then were separated by their sin. Now in verse 6, while well, we're moving right through, aren't we? And I have even better news than that. I know some of you on the way here, especially the little ones, were really excited and saying, I hope there's some kind of insight from the biblical Greek in the sermon today. And if that's you, you're in luck. Because in verse 6, we see Paul do something very cute very like, you know, when pastors will sometimes alliterate the power of the resurrection, the presence of the resurrection, and the potatoes, I don't know, whatever. You get all these. The, well, Paul goes one further. And he gives us three words that describe who we Gentile believers are. And they all start with the same three letters. They're all compound words. And they start with soon. So they start with this word that means with or together with. Actually, some just with the same two letters, but they're, they're made of two words, and the first one is the word with. And he puts those together and starts to pile them up on top of each other because he wants us to recognize just how wonderful our position is. Those of us who were once aliens, far off, not part of Israel, we were, we were dead in our sins and trespasses in which we once walked, following after the devil, the prince of the power of the air. Look at you now. I think it was Cyprian who said, started at the bottom, now we're here. But here's, here's these, these three words, they, they come from, you know, that word soon, it comes into English actually, and you see a lot of words S-Y-N, like synergy, right? That means to work together with. It comes from the Greek sunergon, which means with work, with worker, fellow worker, co-worker. Paul uses that word to say that we are co-workers, not only with him, but with Christ. So these three words that he uses here in, in relation to Gentiles who are now part of the body, he slaps that prefix soon together with or with at the beginning of the word for inheritors or heirs, meaning we are co-heirs, fellow heirs. We are with heirs together with the Jews. We inherit together. And then in Romans 8, he uses that exact same word, the word soon, with, plus the word for inheritors, to describe us as co-heirs, not only with the Jews, but with Christ himself. His inheritance is our inheritance. 
And it's not piecemealed out. Like, you know, you're watching a movie and they're reading the will and you know something crazy is going to happen with a big inequity, right? You know, to my son, Frank Jr., I leave my collection of Rolls Royces and my mansion and my Scrooge McDuck vault full of gold coins. And to my other son, Dan, I leave my timeshare in Muncie and, you know, my collection of keepsake spoons or something. No, 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 no. not the case in the, in the family of God. This is not how it works in Christ. There's no outer circle, inner circle. Our inheritance is his inheritance. We are co-heirs with all of God's people and with Christ himself. Secondly, he sticks that word together with at the beginning for the word body and makes one new word here. Where the ESV says members of the same body, that's five words. Paul says, you know what? I'm going to invent a word. Susoma. I think soon, which means with. Soma, which means body, stick them together. The editor was like, uh, that's not a word. And Paul said, it is now. You see, this idea that we are bodying together with the Jews is at the heart of the mystery Paul wants to reveal. It reminds us of the first mention of the mystery in chapter 1, that we are all gathered together under the headship of Christ. He's going to come back to this again in chapter 4, just as he does in 1 Corinthians 12, as he talks about how Members of the body play different roles, but are all part of one cohesive body of Christ. And no part is more or less vital than any other part. And you might think, well, I've got a little issue with that metaphor. There are parts of my body I can live without and parts that I can't. But notice when Paul starts laying out who is what in 1 Corinthians, nobody is called like the top knuckle of the left hand of God. Everyone is presented as vital to the functioning of a human being. And so we are all together one body. We are all together under one head. And if the church is going to be effective, you can't have part of the body rejecting other parts of the body. In real life, when that happens, that is deadly. Paul's picture of rich and poor, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, male and female, all being one in Christ is a key theme of the New Testament. And I sometimes feel like in the church today, we've just given up on that one. Or where we haven't, it's this very reluctant, foot-dragging kind of cooperation. Like, you know, in an action movie where the cop says to his nemesis, okay, we'll work together for now to get out of this mess, but once we're safe, I'm taking you down. And his nemesis says, well, yeah, of course. Yeah, once we're out of here and this temporary truce is over, we're definitely going to fight to the death. But that is completely opposite of what we see in the church or what we ought to see. When we get to the end of this life, we're all headed to the same place. Any other affiliation in this life is temporary. Only those bonds we have in Christ are eternal. And we have to remember that. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it very succinctly. He said, we are all equally sinners. We are all equally helpless. We have all come to one and the same Savior. We have the same salvation. We have the same Holy Spirit. We have the same Father. We have the same trials even. And finally, we are all marching and going together to the same eternal home. If you're on a trip with someone, you're traveling together, you go to college and you're, you're like, hey, I'm headed west. Anyone else headed west? We can share gas. And you, and you realize, I don't like these people but I only have to endure them for a couple hours because they're going their way, they're going to their parents' house, I'm going to my parents' house, and then it's over. Not the case in the church. You, you get where we're going, and we still spend uh, eternity 
together. We need to remember that we are one body. Paul emphasizes that over and again in his letters. And then thirdly, he slaps this prefix together with on the word participant. It's kind of random, but here it is. Fellow participant together with. And once you start reading into the context, you recognize it is actually a very deeply meaningful thing here. Participant together because what was denied Gentiles was participation in the old economy of grace. They couldn't even enter into the temple. They were kept back. Now they are equal participants. This is a beautiful thing. The word participant has never sounded so hopeful. Sounds like a trophy that the loser gets, but not so in the, in the uh, kingdom of God, in the body of Christ, to be an equal participant together with all of God's people, with the Jews, going back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the greatest blessing that we have. We're participants together in the promise. From the very beginning, when the promise is first given in its seed form in Genesis 3.15, the promise was meant for all peoples. And now that has been fulfilled in Christ and revealed in Him. So it's together, together, and together. And sadly, the ESV doesn't kind of keep that. It doesn't maintain the wordplay here. I'm tempted to say, oh, why don't we go back to the NIV? And why don't we say there, heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. That hits the nail on the head three times like Paul does in his original Greek. Together, together, together. If there's one thing on the apostles' mind that should mark the church of Jesus Christ, it's togetherness. But not just for the sake of togetherness. We're heirs together with one another because we're all co-heirs with Christ. We're part of the same body together because we're members of the body of Christ who is the head. And we're fellow participants because the scripture tells us that when we eat this bread and drink this cup, we participate in the blood and body of Jesus Christ. It's Christ who made the two one. We don't need to make two one. That's, that's done. We don't need to knock down the wall. That's done. We need to not build it again. And then build a bunch more while we're at it. Because boy, down in the flesh, building those walls sure is enjoyable. And we don't just pretend the wall isn't there either. For those of us who are in Christ, it has been removed. I think it's so significant that in the breaking down of this wall, there was a physical manifestation of the tearing in half of that curtain that said this kept back not only Gentiles, but all the Jews except the high priest and him only once a year and with blood. But now access is open to God. And with the tearing of that physical curtain also came the crushing of that metaphorical wall and the access open to God by all peoples. That is indeed good news of great joy. Those angels were right when they sang to the shepherds. We're going to look at verse 7 as well. And in the ESV and the NIV, it's a new paragraph there with verse 7, but in Paul's original Greek, this is all part of one sentence. From verse 1 all the way to verse 7, another super long Pauline sentence, more than a 100 words. And he begins and ends, verse 1 and verse 7, by laying out the grace, the undeserved favor that he has received. And it must be undeserved if Paul really is, if we peek ahead at verse 8, 
less than the least of all the saints. He's less than the least of all the saints. And in verse 7, he says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. If we were going to keep being editors and marking up the uh, epistle to the Ephesians, we might say, hold on, it's impossible to be less than the least. The least is the least. You can't be less than that. Paul's using hyperbole here. Or we might say it's redundant to say the gift of grace. By its very nature, grace must be a gift. Paul is overemphasizing this. He's piling up these terms once again to give us a clear picture of how we are recipients of these things. He didn't earn his ministry. We didn't earn our place in God's family as part of God's body, as participants in his promise. We did not earn our position as heirs. You can't earn a position as an heir. You are an heir based on who your father is. And the same thing is true for all of us. Paul, yes, thinks he's God's gift to Gentiles because he is God's gift to Gentiles, but only because of God's unspeakable gift of grace to him. Application of a text like this to our lives can be kind of hard to identify given that the controversy over including Gentiles in the church has been over for a good 1,960 years or so. Very quickly, the church became very much an integrated movement, and the idea of Jew versus Gentile uh, actually only comes back to play here and there as anti-Semitism sadly raises its head in the church visible. The idea that Gentiles can be Christians is no longer a controversial idea, but I think there are three things we can take away from this text and bring with us. First of all, mysteries are made known. I want you, when you're reading the Scripture, to remember that. Let Scripture interpret Scripture and give a wide berth to anyone teaching the Bible as if it's some kind of puzzle to be solved. It can be enticing, it can be exciting, but you are not going to find anything solid there. Mysteries have been made known in Christ. Read the New Testament. Let Jesus interpret the Old Testament prophecies. Let the apostles interpret the Old Testament. Let these things kind of reveal themselves to us rather than going to CNN or what's trending on Twitter or whatever and trying to fill in the blanks like some kind of prophetic Mad Lib. I think you will find that your time in the Word is a lot more productive and that you are able to spend more time feeding your soul and less time all kind of frustrated that you're getting nowhere and spinning your wheels. Secondly, the curtain has been torn, the wall has been broken, and now God's people are one. And yes, that was my whole point last time in chapter 2, but it bears repeating because it's Paul's main thrust in the book, and some of you weren't here last time, and some of you it didn't take. Because what you did is you built a little wall in your mind, and you put a certain group of Christians on the other side of it, and said, oh yeah, I believe in unity in the church, absolutely. Just not, you know, the footnote says, not them. The walls are broken down, the curtain has been torn down, and now access to God is through Christ, and we are heirs together, participants together, one body together. And that's my third point. Together, together, together in the church, we must be together. We have to make sure we repent of thinking of salvation in private, personal, isolated terms all the time. If the mystery revealed to Paul is that 
God's will in sending Christ was to knock down that wall to make of two people one people. That means that if you're saved, you're saved into a church, not saved to stay a little island or a little kayak floating around all by yourself. No, we are saved to go into the ship with all the other Christians and have fellowship. Come on. We're Baptists, right? And that's soon the Greek word and then the word ship. Uh, we are called together. We are saved together. And in this day and age, church is so downplayed, even amongst Christians, and I don't get it. I understand that we don't want our children to think that I don't need to worry about whether I believe or live a godly life. I go to church, so I'm safe. Sure, sure. But you can go to the other extreme as well, and both are equally dangerous. You know, you hear stuff like, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than hanging out at McDonald's makes you a hamburger. To which I say, Duh, no one ever said it did. Make you a hamburger? How about this? Hanging out at a gym doesn't make you a world-class gymnast. But it's hard to become a world-class gymnast without going to a gym regularly. And if you go and you don't just sit there and watch, but you participate, you're going to become more and more of a gymnast. And coming to church and coming together with the saints and coming to Bible studies and meeting together in prayer and checking in with each other and encouraging one another and caring for one another. All this stuff is the Jesus stuff. This is not add-on modules to the Christian life. It is the Christian life. It is part and parcel of what Jesus came to do, to make one body, to bring all things together under one head, which is Jesus. And all of this goes back to grace. None of this is anything we could have earned. And when we struggle with it, none of it is anything we can master by our own strength and our own will and our own effort. All of it requires us to throw ourselves at the mercy of our Savior and say, have thy own way, Lord. We need more unity in our church. We need more unity in the church universal in our land. We need more togetherness and less. I'm all walking around, all of us with our face buried in our feed on our stupid smartphone. We need more putting that thing down and opening the word together and praying together. And, and talking together and discussing God's word and getting deep into it, getting beyond the milk, getting beyond our daily crouton and instead getting into the meat of God's word. We need all this. If we pray for it, he will help us achieve it. It's all of grace. Let's go to him now in prayer and ask for more. Lord, we, we come to you every time having received grace and asking for more. A child having received great gifts and saying, but Lord, we long for more. We hunger and thirst after righteousness. Lord, we know you've declared us righteous. We hunger and thirst that you would sanctify us all the more, that our lives would reflect the righteous standing that we have in your sight. Lord, we pray for unity and togetherness where there may even be people who are part of Judson Baptist Church who have long-standing bitterness or anger or feuds. Someone may be angry with the leadership of the church. Someone may be angry with a fellow church member. Some, Lord, we pray that we wouldn't let the enemy divide and conquer and, and take away our power, but that we would repent, that we would go to one another, forgive one another, love one another, to be together, to be one body, to be powerful 
Lord, we know that is a great gift that we have and we so often squander it. We pray, Lord, that you will help us to reclaim it where it has been lost. That the world would see us being together at a time when nobody's being together. And that they would say there must be something to this Jesus thing. And when we tell them this is what Jesus did to help us to achieve that, to make it a reality, to crush the walls we've built up, that, Lord, the working of your Spirit would draw them in and they would want that too, to become participants, recipients, co-heirs with us and with Christ. That's what we want, Lord. We ask you for it now in Jesus' name. Amen.